Chapter Twelve, Part One of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Twelve, Part One Mary Baker Eddy. The chief stones in the Temple of Christian Science are to be found in the following postulates that life is God, good and not evil, that soul is sinless, not to be found in the body, that spirit is not and cannot be materialized, that life is not subject to death, that the spiritual real man has no consciousness of material life or death. Mary Baker Eddy Mary Baker Eddy let the fact be here stated that Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of Christian science. This woman lived long and well. She was alert, earnest, highly intelligent, receptive. She was ever discovering. We know this because she put out a new message every little while, or modified an old one, having come in the meantime into a position to get a nearer and clearer view of the fact. The last edition of Science and Health is a different book from the first one. Christian science is not a fixed, formed, fossilized, ossified structure. Possibly it may become so, but the probabilities are it will grow, expand, advance. Life and growth consist in eliminating dead matter and evolving new tissue. The institution, commercial, artistic, social, political, religious, that has ceased to grow, has begun to disintegrate. Christian scientists do not flee the world, renouncing and denouncing it. As a people, they are well, happy, hopeful, enthusiastic, and successful. I am fairly well informed on the history of all great religions. In degree, I know the character of intellect possessed by the folks who make or made up their membership, and my opinion is that no religion that has ever existed contained so large a percentage of intelligent people, competent, safe, and sane, as does Christian science. There is an adage to the effect that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. In the case of Mary Baker Eddy, the adage just quoted goes awry. Mrs. Eddy, as long as she lived, retained the good will of Concord, Boston, and Brooklyn, where she chose to make her home. Very many of the leading men and women of each of these cities are Christian scientists. The Christian Science Church at Concord cost upwards of $200,000, and was the gift of Mrs. Eddy. Over the entrance, cut deep in granite, are the words, presented by Mary Baker Eddy, discoverer and founder of Christian Science. As to the argument that the truths of Christian Science have always been known and practiced by a few, Mrs. Eddy issued her direct challenge, 
In all of her literature she set out the unqualified statement that she was the discoverer and the founder. She was never apologetic. She assumed no modesty she did not feel. She spoke as one having authority, as did Moses of old. Thus saith the Lord. She entered into no joint debates. She did not answer back. This intense conviction, which admits of no parley, was one of the secrets of her power. For many years, the Billingsgate calendar was directed at her upon every possible occasion. But Mrs. Eddy won out, and legislation and courts were compelled to whistle in their hounds. Your right to keep well in your own way is now fully recognized. Doctors are not liable when they give innocent, sweetened water and call it medicine. Nor do we place Christian scientists on trial if their patients die, any more than we do the M.D.'s. In fact, Mrs. Eddy influenced both of the so-called sciences of medicine and theology, even those who are perfectly willing to deny her and noisily discard her tenets are debtors to her. Homeopathy modified the dose of all the allopaths, and Christian science has attenuated the Harmanian theory of attenuations, it having been found that the blank tablet often cures quite as effectively as the one that is medicated. Christian science does not shout, rant, defy, nor preach. It is poised, silent, sure, and the flagellants, like the dervishes, are noticeable by their absence. The Reverend Billy Sunday is not a Christian scientist. The Christian scientist does not cut into the grape, specialize on the elevated spheroid, devote his energies to bridge whist, cultivate the scandal microbe, join the anvil chorus, nor shake the red rag of wordy warfare. He is diligent in business, fervent in spirit, and accepts what comes without protest, finding it good. Mary Baker Eddy lived a human life. Through her manifold experiences, she gathered gear. She was a very great and wise woman. She was so great that she kept her own counsel, received no visitors, made no calls, had no Thursday, wrote no letters, and even never went to the church that she presented to her native town. Mrs. Eddy's step was ever light, her form erect, a slender, handsome, queenly woman. When she passed on in December 1910, in her ninetieth year, she looked scarce more than sixty. Her face showed experience, but not extreme age. The day I saw her, a few years before her death, she was dressed all in white satin and looked like a girl going to a ball. Her eyes were not dimmed, nor her face wrinkled. Her hat was a milliner's dream. Her gloves came to the elbow and were becomingly wrinkled. Her form was the form of Bernhardt. Her secretary stood by the carriage door, his head bared. He did not offer his hand to the lady, nor seek to assist her into the carriage. He knew his business, 
a sober, silent, muscular, bronzed, farmer-like man, who evidently saw everything and nothing. He closed the carriage door and took his seat by the side of the driver, who wore no livery. The men looked like brothers. The big brown horses started slowly away. They were no blinders, nor check-reins. They, too, had banished fear. The coachman drove with a loose rein. The next day I waited in Concord to see Mrs. Eddy again. At exactly 2.15, the big, brown, slow-going horses turned into Main Street. Drays pulled in to the curb. Automobiles stopped. People stood on the street corners. And some, the pilgrims, uncovered. Mrs. Eddy sat back in the carriage, holding in her white-gloved hands a big spray of apple blossoms, the same half-smile of satisfaction on her face, the smile of Pope Leo the Thirteenth. The woman was a veritable queen, and some of her devotees, not without reason, called her the Queen of the World. Some doubtless prayed to her, and may yet, for that matter. Mrs. Eddy was married three times, first to Colonel George W. Clover, an excellent and worthy man, who was the father of her only child, a son. On the death of Glover, the child was taken by Glover's mother, and secreted so effectually that his mother did not see him until he was thirty-four years old, and the father of a family. Her second husband was Daniel Patterson, who was not only a rogue, but also a fool, a flashy one, who turned the head of a lone, lorn young widow, who certainly was not infallible in judgment. In two years the wife got a divorce from him, on the grounds of cruelty and desertion, at Salem, Massachusetts. Her third marital venture was Dr. Asa G. Eddy, a practicing physician, a man of much intelligence and worth. From him, Mrs. Eddy learned that the science of medicine was not much of a science after all. Mrs. Eddy used to say that her husband was her first convert. Certain it is that Dr. Eddy gave up his practice to assist his wife in putting before the world the unreality of disease. That he did not fully grasp the idea is shown by the fact that he died of pneumonia. This, however, did not shake the faith of Mrs. Eddy in the doctrine that sickness was an error of mortal mind. For a good many years, Mrs. Eddy drove the memory of her two good husbands' tandem, hitched by a hyphen, thus, Mary Baker Glover Eddy. Many a woman has joined her own name to that of her husband. But what woman ever before so honoured the two men she had loved by coupling their names? Getting married is a bad habit, Mrs. Eddy would probably have said. But you have to get married to find it out. In 1879, Mrs. Eddy organised the First Church of Christ, Scientist in Boston, and became its pastor. In 1881, being then sixty years of age, 
she founded the Massachusetts Metaphysical College in Boston. For fifteen years she had been speaking in public, affirming that health was our normal condition, and that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. From her forty-fifth to her sixtieth year, she was glad to speak for what was offered, although I believe that even then she had discarded the good old priestly plan of taking up a collection. The metaphysical college was started to prepare students for teaching Mrs. Eddy's doctrines. The business ability of the woman was shown in thus organizing and allowing no one to teach who was not duly prepared. These students were obliged to pay a good stiff tuition, which fact made them appreciative. In turn they went out and taught. All students pay the tidy sum of one hundred dollars for the lessons, which fee was later cut to fifty. Salvation may be free, but Christian science costs money. The theological genus, Piker, with his long, wrinkled black coat, his collar buttoned behind, and his high hat, has been eliminated. Mrs. Eddy was manager of the best methodized institution in the world, save only the Roman Catholic Church and the Standard Oil Company. How many million copies of Science and Health have been sold, no man can say. What percentage of the money from the lessons went to Mrs. Eddy? Only an Armstrong committee could ascertain, and really it was nobody's business but hers. That Mrs. Eddy had some very skilful helpers goes without saying, but here is the point. She selected them and reigned supreme. That the student who paid fifty dollars got his money's worth, I have no doubt. Not that he understood the lessons, but he received a feeling of courage and a oneness with the whole, which caused health to flow through his veins and his heart to beat with joy. The lesson might have been to him a jumble of words, but he lived in hopes that he would soon grow to a point where the lines were luminous. In the meantime, all he knew was that whereas he was once lame, he could now walk. Even the most bigoted and prejudiced now agree that the cures of Christian science are genuine. People who think they have trouble, have it, and it is the same with pain. Imagination is the only sure enough thing in the world. Mrs. Eddy's doctrines abolish pain and therefore abolish poverty, for poverty in America at least is a disease. Mrs. Eddy's chief characteristics were, first, love of beauty as manifest in bodily form, dress, and surroundings. Second, a zeal for system, order, and concentrated effort on the particular business she undertakes. Third, a dignity, courage, self-sufficiency, and self-respect that comes from a belief in her own divinity. Fourth, an economy of time, money, materials, energy, and emotion that wastes nothing, but which continually conserves and accumulates.
Fifth, a liberality, when advisable, which is only possible to those who also economize. Sixth, Yankee shrewdness, great common sense, all flavored with a dash of mysticism and indifference to physical, scientific accuracy. In other words, Christian science is a woman's science. She knows, and it is good because it is good. This is a science sound enough for anybody. I guess so. Christian science is scientific, but not for the reasons that its promoters maintain. Male Christian scientists do not growl and kick the cat. Women Christian scientists do not nag. Christian scientists do not have either the grouch or the meddler's itch. Among them there are no dolorosos, grumperinos, or beggars. They respect all other denominations, having a serene faith that all will yet see the light, that is to say, adopt their doctrines. The most radical among old-school doctors could not deny that Mrs. Eddy's own life was conducted on absolutely scientific lines. She never answered the telephone, never fussed, nor fumed. She hired big, safe people, and paid them a big wage. She gave her coachman fifty dollars a week, and her cook in proportion, and thus secured people who gave her peace. She went to bed with the birds and awoke with the dawn. At seven o'clock she was at her desk, dictating answers to the very few letters her secretary deemed it advisable she should see. She had breakfast at nine o'clock, ate anything she liked, taking her time and fletchering. After breakfast, she worked upon her manuscripts until it was time for the daily ride. At four o'clock she dined, two meals a day being the rule. If, however, she cared to dissipate a little and eat three meals a day, she was not afraid to do so. She knew her horses and cows and sheep by name, and gave requests as to their care, holding that the laws of mind obtain as to dumb animals the same as man. Dogs she did not care for, and if she ever had an aversion, it would have been cats. Her servants she called my helpers. Christian scientists very naturally believe in the equality of the sexes. When girl babies are born to them, they bless God, just the same as when boy babies are born. In truth, they bless God for everything, for to them all is beautiful and all is good. Paid preachers they do not have. They do not believe in priests or certain men who are nearer to God than others. All have access to eternal truth, and thus is the ecclesiastic excluded. To eliminate the theological middleman is well. And as for the church itself, surely Mrs. Eddy eliminated it also, for she never entered a church, or at least not more than once a year, and then it was only in deference to the architect. A church? Is it necessary? For herself, Mrs. Eddy said, no. But as for others, she said, yes, 
a church is good for those who need it. Mrs. Eddy was the most successful author in the world, or indeed, that the world has ever seen. No other writer ever made so much money as she. None is more devoutly read. Shakespeare, with his fortune of a quarter of a million dollars, fades into comparative failure. And Arthur Brisbane, with his salary of seventy-five thousand a year, is an office boy compared with this regal woman, who gave fifty thousand dollars a year for good roads. The valuable truths and distinguishing features of Christian science are not to be found in Mrs. Eddy's books, but in Mrs. Eddy's life. She was a much bigger woman than she was a writer. Emerson says that every great institution is the lengthened shadow of a single man. Every great business enterprise has a soul. One man's spirit animates, pervades, and tints the whole. You can go into any hotel or store, and behold, the nature or character of the owner or manager is everywhere proclaimed. You do not have to see the man, and the bigger the institution, the less need is there for the man to show himself. His work proclaims him, just as a farmer's livestock, all moo, whinny, and squeal his virtues, or lack of them. As a boy of ten, I learned to know all of our neighbors by their horses. The horses of a drunkard, blanketless, hungry, shivering, outside of the village tavern, do they not proclaim the poor despised owner within? You can walk through the passenger coaches of a train made up at a terminal and read the character unmistakably of the general passenger agent. The soul of John Wesley ran through Methodism and made it what it was. The Lutheranism of Luther yet lives. Calvinism the same, and the soul of John Knox still goes marching on, carrying the Presbyterian banner. Every religion partakes of the nature of its founder, until this religion is mixed with that of another, and its character lost as happened to the religion of Christ when it was launched by Paul and was finally fused with paganism by the Roman Emperor, Constantine. Christian science is as yet the lengthened shadow of Mary Baker Eddy. Her own immediate personal pupils are still teaching, and her life and characteristics impressed upon them are given out to each and all. Every phase of life is solved by answering the question, What would Mrs. Eddy do? Mrs. Eddy's ideas about dress, housekeeping, business, food, health, the management of servants, the care of children, all are blended into a composite. And this composite is the Christian scientist as we see and know him. The fact that Mrs. Eddy was methodical industrious, economical, persevering, courageous, hopeful, helpful, neat in her attire and smiling, makes all Christian scientists exactly so. She did not play cards and indulge in the manifold silliness of so-called good society, and neither do they.
indeed, that one thing which has been referred to as the plaster of Paris smile, the one feature in Christian science to which many good people object, is the direct legacy of Mrs. Eddy to her pupils. Science and health says nothing about it. No edict has been put forth recommending it, but all good Christian scientists take it on, the smile that refuses to vacate the premises. And to some it is certainly very becoming. Mrs. Eddy's self-reliant, silent, smiling personality has given the key to conduct for the hundreds of thousands of people who love her and revere her memory. Mrs. Eddy was a rare good listener. She did not argue. Once upon a time, indeed, she was guilty of waving the red flag of wordy warfare, but the passing of the years brought her wisdom, and then her only answer to impatience was the quiet smile. As for eating, her table always had enough, but it stopped short of surfeit. The service was dainty, and all these things are now seen in the homes of Christian scientists. Always in the home of a good Christian scientist, the bathroom is as complete as the library, and both are models of good housekeeping, seemingly always in order for the inspection committee. Mrs. Eddy did not say much about hot water, soap, and clean towels, but the idea, regardless of the non-existence of matter, is fixed in the consciousness of every Christian scientist that absolute bodily cleanliness, fresh linen and fresh air, are not only next to godliness, but elements of it, all of which you could never work out of science and health with key to the scriptures in a lifetime of study, any more than you could mine and smelt the Westminster Catechism out of the Bible. The vital truths of right living come to us as a precious heritage from the character of this great woman. She herself, perhaps, may not have known this, but before she wrote her book and formulated her religion, she lived her life. Her book was an endeavor to explain her life, and as her life grew better, stronger, and more refined, she changed her book. Her book reacted on her life, and the person who got the most good out of science and health was Mary Baker Eddy herself. Science and health is mystical and beautifully human. The author's awe often fails to catch the water. For instance, she tries to show that animal magnetism, spiritualism, mental science, theosophy, agnosticism, pantheism, and infidelity are all bad things and opposed to the science of true being. This statement presupposes that animal magnetism, infidelity, theosophy, and agnosticism are specific entities or things, whereas they are only labels that are clapped quite indiscriminately on empty casks or full ones, and the contents of the casks may be seawater or wine, and are really unknown to both mortal and divine mind, whatever these things are. 
theosophists like Annie Besant, spiritualists like Alfred Russell Wallace, agnostics like Huxley and Ingersoll, are very noble and beautiful people. They are good neighbors and useful citizens. Science and health is an attempt to catch and hold in words the secrets of an active, honest, healthful, seeking, restless, earnest life, and as such is more or less of a failure. Our actions are right, but our reasons seldom are. Christian science as a plan of life, embodying the great yet simple virtues, is beautiful. Science and health with key to the scriptures does not explain the scriptures. The book, as an attempt to explain and crystallize truth, is a failure. It ranks with that great mass of literature, written and copied at such vast pains and expense, bearing the high-sounding title, Writings of the Saints. All publishers are familiar with inspired manuscripts. Such work always has one thing in common, unintelligibility. Good literature is lucid to the average mind. In fact, that is its distinguishing feature. We understand what the man means. No able writer uses the same word over and over with varying sense. Alfred Henry Lewis and William Marion Reedy use the mortal mind, and their work is understandable. You can sit in judgment on their conclusions, and weigh, sift, and decide for yourself. They make an appeal to your intellect. But you cannot sit in judgment on science and health, because its language is not the language we use in our common everyday intercourse with one another. It speaks of Christ as a person, a principle, a spirit, a motive, as truth, as one who was born of one parent or no parents, who lived, died, or never lived, never was born, and cannot die. Metaphysics is an attempt to explain a thing, and thereby evade the trouble of understanding it. You throw the burden of proof on the other fellow, and make him believe he does not comprehend because he is too stupid. This is not fair. Language is simply an agreement between people that certain vocal sounds or written symbols shall stand for certain ideas, thoughts, or things. Inspired writers string intelligent words together in an unintelligent manner and thereby give the reader an opportunity to read anything into them that his preconceived thoughts may dictate. Metaphysical gibberish is a rudimentary survival of the practice of reading to the people in a dead language. The doctors continue the plan by writing prescriptions in Latin. I once worked in a studio where the boys scraped their palette knives on a convenient board one day we took the board out and had it framed under glass with a double deep shadow box. We gave it the best place in the studio and labelled it A Sunset at Sea, an impression in monochrome. 
the picture attracted much attention and great admiration from certain symbolists. It also created so much controversy that we were obliged to take it down in the interests of amity. To assume that God inspired the scriptures and did the work so ill that, after more than two thousand years, it was necessary to inspire another person to make a key to them is hardly worthy of our serious attention. If God, being all-wise, all-powerful, and all-loving, turns author, why does he produce work so muddy that it requires a key? Individuals may use a code that requires a key because they wish to keep their matter secret from others. There may be for them a penalty on truth, but why deity should write in a secret language, and then wait two thousand years before making the matter plain, and then to one single woman in Boston is incomprehensible. What the world wants now is a key to science and health. In reading a book, the question that interests us is not, is it inspired, but is it true? Mrs. Eddy's ranks are recruited almost entirely from Orthodox Christianity. On page 608 of Science and Health, pocket edition of 1906, a lawyer gives testimony to the good he has gotten from Christian science, and explains that he has long been a member of the Episcopal Church. He is delighted to know that he has not had to relinquish any of his old faith, but has simply kept the old and added to it the new. This explains in great degree the popularity of Christian science. People cling to the religious superstitions into which they were born. Mrs. Eddy's recruits were not from theosophy, spiritualism, agnosticism. Unitarianism, Universalism, or Infidelity. You can't give a free thinker a book with the statement of what he must find in it. He has acquired the habit of thinking for himself. Mrs. Eddy had no faith in Darwin, Spencer, or Haeckel. She quoted Moses, Jesus, and Paul to disprove the evolutionists, sat back and smiled content innocently unaware that citations from scriptures are in no sense proof to free minds. All of the Bible she wished to waive, she did. The cruelty and bestiality of Jehovah were nothing to her. Her key does not unlock the secrets of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, nor does it shed light on the doctrines of eternal punishment the vicarious atonement, or the efficacy of baptism as a saving ordinance. Explanations about mortal mind, divine mind, and human mind, citing specific errors of the human mind, with a calm codicil to the effect that the human mind has no existence, are not what you might call illuminating literature. The stuff is simply inspired. Mrs. Eddy was very wise in not allowing her 
readers or followers to sermonize or explain her writings. These writings are simply to be read, and so the hearers sit steeped in mist and wrapped in placidity, returning to their work rested and refreshed, without being influenced in any way, save by the soothing calm of forceful fog and mental vacuity. The rest and relief from all thought is good. The related experiences of Christian scientists are the things that convince and carry weight, not science and health. Science and health was made to sell. It was not given to you to be understood. It was to be bought and believed. If you doubt any portion of it, at once you are told that this is the work of your mortal mind, which is filled with error. Good Christian scientists do not try to understand science and health. They just accept and believe it. It is inspired, they say, so it must be true. You will know when you are worthy to know. And so we see our old friend, intellectual tyranny, come back in another form, not with cowl and cape, but tricked out with feminine finery and jewellery and gems that lure and dazzle. There is one thing quite as valuable as health, and that is intellectual integrity. To say, oh, science and health is certainly inspired. Just see how old Mrs. Johnson was cured of the rheumatism. Is not reasoning. And it has given the scoffer's excuse for calling it woman's logic. Such reasoning is on the plane of, why, Jesus must have been the only begotten son of God, born of a virgin. For if you don't believe it, just see the hospitals, orphan asylums, and homes for the aged that Christianity has built. Mrs. Johnson was surely cured of the rheumatism all right. But that does not prove that Mrs. Eddy is correct in her claim that Eve was made from Adam's rib, that agamogenesis is a fact in nature, that to toil the soil will not always be necessary, that human life in these bodies will have no end, and that an absent person can poison your health and happiness through malicious animal magnetism, or that a good person can give you absent treatment and cure your indigestion. I agree with Mrs. Eddy as to the necessity of eliminating a medical fetish, but I disagree with her about religiously preserving a theological one. I have read Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures for twenty years, and I have also read the Scriptures for a much longer period. Also, I have lived in the same house for many months with very intelligent Christian scientists. And after mature consideration, I regard both the Scriptures and Science and Health as largely made up of the errors of mortal mind. My intuitions are just as valuable to me as Mrs. Eddy's were to her. My conscience is quite as sacred to me as hers was to her, and in being an agnostic I object to being classed as blind, stubborn, willful, malicious, and degenerate. 
we should honor our Creator by cleaving to the things that seem to us to be true, and not abandon the rudder of our minds to any man or any woman, be they living or dead. Let us not be dishonest with ourselves, even to rid us of our physical diseases. As for health, I have all of it that Christian science ever gave or can give. I have no testimony of healing to relate, for I have never been sick an hour, and I think I know how I have kept well. I make no secret of it. It is all very simple. Nothing miraculous. My knowledge of how to keep well is not inspired knowledge, save as all men are inspired who study and know the laws of nature. Health, after all, is largely a matter of habit. Back of the reading desks in the Mother Church at Boston are quotations from Paul and Mrs. Eddy side by side. But the quotation from Paul, which is behind the desk of the woman reader, is not this, let women keep silent in the churches. Mrs. Eddy believed the scriptures are all true, word for word. Yet when she quoted Paul, she picked the things she wanted, and avoided all that did not apply to her case. Personally, I like the plan. I do it myself. But I do not believe the scriptures are inspired by an all-wise deity. So far as I know, all books were written by men, and very often by faulty human men at that. Mrs. Eddy's key does not unlock anything, and she did not try to unlock any passages except the passages that seemingly had a bearing on her belief. That is, Mrs. Eddy believed things first, and then skirmished for proof. This is a very old plan, says Shakespeare. In religion, what damned error but some somber brow will bless it and approve it with a text, hiding the grossness thereof with fair ornament. Let no one read Science and Health in the hope of finding in it simple and sensible statements concerning life and its duties. They are not there. I append a few quotations, and in mentioning the page I refer to the pocket or Oxford edition of 1906. On page 183 of Science and Health, I find the scriptures inform us that sin or error first caused the condemnation of man to till the ground and indicate that obedience to God will remove this necessity. Mrs. Eddy evidently believed that work is a punishment and that the day will come when God will remove the necessity of farming and making garden. Can a sane person reply to such lack of logic? On page 547 is this. If one of the statements in this book is true, every one must be true. For not one departs from its system and rule. You can prove for yourself, dear reader, the science of healing and so ascertain if the author has given you the correct interpretation of Scripture. This is evidently inspired by Paul's quibble. 
If the dead rise not from the grave, then is our religion vain. Lincoln once referred to this kind of reasoning by saying, I object to the assumption that my ambition is to have my son marry a negress simply because I am struggling for emancipation. Mrs. Eddy may heal you, but that does not prove that her interpretation of Scripture is true. Because this happens, that does not necessarily follow. Neither, because a thing precedes a thing, or goes with a thing, is the thing the cause of the thing. On page 553 is this. Adam was created before Eve. Herein it is seen that the maternal egg never brought forth Adam. Eve was formed from Adam's rib, not from a fetal ovum. In reading things like this in Science and Health, let us not be too severe on Mrs. Eddy, but just bear in mind that such silly superstitions and barbaric folklore are yet officially believed by all Orthodox clergymen and members of Orthodox churches. You can accept a belief in Adam's fall and the vicarious atonement and still make money and have good health. End of Chapter 12 Part 1 Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Teachers Recording by Luke Sartor, Berkeley, California